Begin Podfix Network transmission in three, two, one. Is up, plant people. Hey, today is, I don't know, some day of the week. I think it's a Wednesday. And that means it's time again for the Planthropology Podcast, the show where we dive into the lives, careers, and general awesomeness of some very cool plant people and some cool plant topics. I'm Vikram Baliga, your host and your humble guide in this journey through the sciences. And as always, y'all, I am so thrilled to be with you today. How's February going? I'll tell you, if you're listening to this in the future, I'm recording this in February of 2020. We don't have flying car. Well, there are some flying cars out there. I don't have a flying car yet. So if you're listening to this in the pilot seat, driver's seat, captain's chamber of your flying vehicle sometime in the future, with this being beamed directly into your brain case, you should know that you're much better off than I am, maybe, unless you're part of the car. I don't know. This is getting weird in a hurry, but we're just going to go with it. Y'all, I'm so excited about today's episode. I say that every time, and I'm always excited. My guest today is someone that I got to know through Twitter, and this seems to be a common story that I've made a lot of cool online friends who have, for some reason, decided that they'd be willing to talk to me on this podcast. And um, I've met some cool plant people, lots of cool science people, and my guest Emily Dobry is definitely one of them. So Emily and I got connected through some podcast stuff and some different projects, non-plant-related projects even, uh, a while back, and and we talked for a while about how to record and when to record, and uh, I know she went through some things where she changed programs and studied different things, so after a while, we finally got the chance to record late in 2021, and Emily's one of the first pathologists that I've had on the show. And um, everyone send her a big congratulations because she just finished her master's degree at the end of last year. And that is such a cool and huge accomplishment. Now she's working on her PhD at Penn State uh, studying potatoes, which is everyone's favorite starch. So if you want uh, more information about that, she talks about that in this episode, just a little bit about what she's doing. But if you like potatoes, send Emily a thank you note because she's working to make them better. But we talked about everything from being sort of a non-traditional graduate student, which may just be every graduate student these days, I don't know, uh, to plant pandemics and um, what the deal is with invasive shrimp, which are weird words that just came out of my mouth, and what chestnuts are like and the things that we do to protect chestnuts and the ways that we've lost chestnuts and their importance to American culture and the American ecosystem. So this is a great episode. I know y'all are going to love it. It was fun uh, getting to re-listen to this as I edited it. So without too much more blabbering, uh, I'm going to say bye for now. I'll see you at the mid-roll. But until then, y'all hang out and you listen to episode 71 of the Planthropology Podcast with my friend, Emily Dobry. Well, Emily, I am so excited to get to talk to you finally today. Uh, I know it's something we've been trying to coordinate for a while, and it's exciting to finally get to sit down and chat for a while. So how are you? I'm good. I'm really excited to be here. That's awesome. So Emily and I got connected, or you and I got connected on Twitter a while back through podcast stuff and and other stuff. And, and we had originally talked, I think, maybe a research project to go about you coming on. And then I think some of that changed. So why don't you introduce yourself a little bit more and um, 
tell us about your background, what you do now, and how you got to where you are today. Sure. I have a, kind of a crazy background. So right now, I am a master's candidate for horticulture, which I think they technically actually phased out the program because nobody <laughs> recognizes horticulture. That's actually pretty true. <laughs> so they call it something new now, but that's technically my uh, my title, horticulture. So I, I got into working with chestnuts, but really my background is very uh, diverse. I've worked with uh, invasive shrimps in Lake Erie. I have worked with um, freshwater salinization as an undergrad, uh, toxicity testing, all kinds of stuff. So, so That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, I started as an ecology major as an undergrad, but then when I got into graduate school, I switched to more plant-based, plant-focused research. Okay. Uh, I have questions about shrimp. Okay. <laughs> in my head in a minute, um, which I know is weird. Um, have you always like been interested in plants or is that something that kind of came later in life? Well, I mean, I guess I, I grew up loving plants. My parents always gardened. We went for hikes. I had a great love for nature since I was a little kid. So really basically anything biology really interested in me. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I, I had a uh, part-time job as an undergrad doing summer research and I started working with the chestnuts and that's, I hadn't even, I didn't know anything about chestnuts until I started that position. And then I was just swooped up by it. It was absolutely fascinating. And so that's kind of what led me here. Okay. That's, that's really cool. And, and chestnuts are such an interesting plant and such an interesting crop, both in like a current, like market sense, but in a historical sense to the, the United States. Um, Very much and, so. And we can get into some of the details of that in a minute. But first, okay, invasive shrimp. I that is <laughs> Those are not words that I had ever put together in my brain. And I guess it makes sense. Anything can be invasive. So tell me about invasive shrimp. I'm, I'm very <laughs> curious about this for some reason. Okay, so this was a project I was working on as an undergrad. So it was just a summer job. But we were working to try and find ways to detect uh, bloody red shrimp. I believe the scientific name is Hemimysis anomala. Okay. In ballast water, because they haven't been detected in Lake Superior yet. And so we we're trying to kind of develop a way to detect them and prevent them from getting there. They've invaded from somewhere overseas. I don't remember where because it was so long ago when I studied <laughs> this. But <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we have uh, freshwater shrimp now. In Lake Erie. Huh. You know, that that's that's fascinating to me because I, you know, we, we talk a lot about zebra mussels in mm -hmm. Texas. That's which is when I think of and, and this is maybe like a, a problem with the way we communicate biology and ecology in general. Because when I think of invasive species, I tend to think of like bigger, you mm -hmm. know, more charismatic yes. species. Uh but ecologically it may be some of these like less charismatic fauna that actually end up doing more damage. Yeah. And the interesting thing about these is they're, they're itty bitty and they only come out for certain times of the year, but they cause a lot of problems when they do come out because they outcompete the native shrimp. Huh? Huh? I, I don't know. For some reason, when you said invasive shrimp, my brain was just like, I need to know more about this. <laughs> so, what made you decide to to go back for a master's? Was that like was that the plan when you were doing your undergrad? And I I ask that because it wasn't for me. And then towards the end, it was like, oh, you should do more school. 
Uh, it always was the plan for me to okay. go for a master's or a PhD. Now I'm moving on for PhD, but um, oh, awesome. Yeah, the, I think the main reason is you really can't get paid anything in biology <laughs> with just a bachelor's. So, but I also love what I do, so I really wanted to pursue it further. Okay, yeah, I get that. And and for me, I don't know. Like when I was doing my undergrad, I I think I was not. I didn't have that much foresight. Maybe um, when I was doing it, I was just like. I guess I just do an undergrad and then I get a job. And then like you say, the farther I got into it, I was like, oh, that's not really how it necessarily works. Yeah. <laughs> Especially where I'm at, there aren't any positions where I live for uh, just a bachelor's in biology of any kind. So. Okay. So uh, let's talk about your research and let's talk about chestnuts. And, and can you uh, give us a little bit of history of the American chestnut? Because for for me, I know a little bit about it, and I think it's so fascinating. Sure. Yeah. So prior to the turn of the 20th century, the American chestnut, which was the only native chestnut species that we have, there are some chestnut relatives like the uh, chinkapins, but the only oh, okay. actual chestnut species that we have is the American chestnut. So prior to the turn of the 20th century, it was they estimated it accounted for like 25% of the canopy in the Appalachian Mountains. So it was a it was a major canopy species there. Mm -hmm. So that was all along the eastern coast. But then at the turn of the 20th century, we had the introduction of chestnut blight, which is a pathogen that basically rotted the trunks. And it killed all above ground tissue. And it killed an estimated 4 billion trees in about 50 years. But to be fair, man played a good role in that also. We we do. We are that way. Um, Four billion trees. Yeah, well, to be it's an estimation because okay. if you're thinking the turn of the 20th century, they were just starting to develop forest programs in the United States. Okay. So there really hadn't been any surveys. But if you take a look at images from following the introduction of chestnut blight and what it did, you can get an idea of just how important this tree was and how widely spread it was. And in a lot of areas, it was the only tree that you would see for miles and miles. Well, and you said, what, 25% of the canopy cover? That's an estimation, yep. Wow. I I think that's that's an interesting number to, to talk about a little bit because I, I think a lot of folks may not have a concept of what, like, what, what that really means. I think that's really, that's a lot. That is a lot of trees. Yeah, it is. So if you were to go for a walk in, in the woods, you would be looking at one in four trees is an American chestnut. And these things were tall trees they were straight grained and they produced prolific amounts of nuts i mean it was just crazy they they would say that in some places you could stand six inches deep on chestnuts because wow. they would produce so many so if you have one in four trees that's a lot that is a lot of trees and, and i guess from an ecological standpoint like that must be a must have been and maybe still is a major food source for like all kinds of life it right? was I, yep it really was. The nuts in particular, because they were very high in fat and proteins. So they were super healthy. They were um, low in tannins, so they were really tasty. Hmm. So they were widely used by people who lived in the Appalachian Mountains. They would send their pigs out to hmm. feed on it, so it's free fodder. They would collect them and sell them because they were considered the tastiest of all the chestnuts that are grown all over the world. I mean, it was a really good food resource. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think... 
you know, tree nuts as a protein source is something that probably gets overlooked a lot, you know, a mm-hmm. fat source and a protein source. But from, you know, pecans to chestnuts and, and everything in between, I think if you look at diets of na- native populations throughout the Americas, like that was a major dietary mm-hmm. source. It was. And actually, the Native American communities are really largely responsible for the range of the chestnut because they picked it up and they turned it into a crop. So the reason that it had the range that it did was because the Native Americans brought it with them. I think that is such an interesting and actually important point to make. And and this is something we've talked about a little bit on the show before. But there's this concept, I think, in a lot of the Eurocentric uh, history of the Americas that, like, uh, I, you know, let me back up. We talked about ecology in... Um, uh, my class recently, and we were talking about native plants. And I asked the question, like, what is, what is a native plant? What does that even mean? And my students just, it's the end of the semester. They just stared at me, you know, they were like, (laughs) just tell us, man. And, uh, you know, the, the, the definition I think gets, that gets used a lot is the plants that were present when Europeans showed up, uh, and in horticulture, and I think a lot of people don't realize this, that's a very common definition of a native plant. Like the peoples that lived here before didn't have a profound impact on the environment. And they did. They absolutely did. Um, and like you said, they they planted these trees. They spread them throughout the Appalachians. And mm-hmm. I think that's so important to understand because it's like, it's easy to think of ancient peoples or not even ancient peoples, but native and indigenous peoples as primitive and they weren't they were just using the tools they had and the resources they had absolutely like like any of us do i guess Mm -hmm. um so okay let's talk about your research what are what are you working on or what did you just finish working on congratulations by the way thank you very tired (laughs) so i just finished okay let me back that up a little bit when i started working with chestnuts as an undergrad I was looking at these American chestnuts that we had on, we have a grape station. It's a grape research center. And we just have this very small stand of chestnuts. Mm-hmm. And when I was observing these, I noticed that several of the trees had very large lesions on their trunks. So they had very big cankers or rot spots on the trunks. And so we isolated from those to try and determine what was causing it. Assuming that most likely we were going to find chestnut blight because that is the primary canker causing pathogen for chestnuts. Mm -hmm. But ultimately what we ended up finding was a pathogen with a name that's kind of hard to say. (laughs) It's called Pneumoniopsis castanei. (laughs) Yep. I would, I would not do that well. (laughs) No, the other name is Pneumoniopsis smithogolvii. So there are two names and (laughs) it was named simultaneously and there's some debate over what's the actual accepted name, but the common name is chestnut brown rot because it's primarily associated with nut rot of chestnuts. Okay. So when we found this, it hadn't been documented in the U.S. yet. So this was 2018. Oh, wow. So we kind of said, wow, <laughs> what are we looking at here? What's going on? And then ultimately that really led to my thesis research. And so what we wanted to do was look at this pathogen and what it would mean for chestnut trees that are cultivated here in the U.S. So that's the American chestnut, the Chinese chestnut, and then their hybrids. Because right now, 
the major project to try and reintroduce chestnuts to the forest is a hybridization project crossing the American chestnut with the Chinese chestnut. So we wanted to see what this pathogen would do to them because we didn't know. Nobody knew at that point. Right. And we kind of wanted to, you know, get ahead of it if this is going to be another chestnut blight type issue. But we also wanted to see if other close relatives of chestnut, like oak and beech, could be susceptible to a damaging infection. So we did. We looked at multiple species within the family. So that that's really interesting. I I uh, I guess had not thought a lot about some of these um, intergeneric or interfamiliar relationships between trees and. That's something we haven't really gotten into on the show ever. So are those the two closest relatives to the chestnut, the uh, the oak and the beech? Well, I, the closest relative would be the chinkapin. Okay. Because it's kind of uh, – it's like a subspecies of chestnut. Mm-hmm. It's a, sh- a chestnut shrub. But then, yes, oak would be the closest and from that beech. I think that th- th- that's fascinating. So pathology isn't something we've talked about a lot on here. Um is that fairly common for for plant diseases or tree diseases specifically to jump a, a genus like that? So that there's a lot of debate in that because in terms of plant pathology, a lot of times when we find that one specific host, one species is is really uh, susceptible, we say, oh, this is host specific, whether it's host species specific or host genus specific. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at say, all the chestnut species or just one species, for example. We tend to close our eyes and our minds to the possibility that other species or genera could be susceptible. So there hasn't been a whole lot of research outside of, like, sudden oak death, Mm -hmm. which they found could affect, what, hundreds of species? I believe. Yeah, so, yeah, I think that's right. But largely when in terms of pathology, I don't I'm, I don't know why it is, but we tend to close our minds to the idea that other species might be susceptible. But there is some evidence that this pa- we know that this pathogen exists in other hardwood species over in Europe. They've found it in oak, they've found it in manna ash, they've seen it causing minor cankers in hazelnut and common box. So we know that it can do some damage in other species, but nobody's really looked at how much that's <clears throat> that is an interesting phenomenon that it's like no this is the species or the the plant that it affects and this is all that it does mm-hmm. and this is all i'm going to think about maybe it's wishful thinking i don't i don't know uh well i mean i think in terms of diseases it's it's common for a disease to have one host that it's the most damaging to sure but to think that maybe other hosts can't exist is not necessarily the wisest way to do that. It's maybe not the best approach. I mean, there, there are in plant in pathology, plant pathology, there are some species where they have alternating hosts. So they have the host that they do the damage in, and then they have a host that they'll just kind of chill out and, and spend part of their life cycle, but they don't cause damage. Right. Like uh, uh, like cedar apple rust yes. or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's an interesting one. We get some of that here. Uh, so for those that, that don't know, cedar apple rust causes these weird like jelly-like fungal growths on, I believe, on the cedar. Is that correct? Or do yes. they do it on both? Okay. Uh, I think the apple's the, 
the secondary host, right? Yeah. Uh, and we also have a native plant um, called agarita here um, that has like really pointy leaves. And you wouldn't think it's in a different genus. It's totally unrelated or largely unrelated, but it's also a, an alternate host, which is weird. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you find all these weird relationships. And I I, I just want to throw it out there that fungus kind of runs the world. And we're, it does. We, just get, we just get to live it in does. it. <laughs> Fungi are fascinating. They are, and they don't. Again, I know very little about it. I'm not a mycologist, and I've talked with some mycologists who say big words that make my brain hurt. And I'm just like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but they don't seem to ever behave like we really expect them to, largely, or at least for me. I I read about some of the stuff that fungi can do, and I'm like, one, that's scary, and and two, I don't understand what's going on. Here. Yeah, we are constantly finding out new things about fungi, and it's. Exciting and sometimes a little bit nerve wracking. <laughs> uh huh. Uh-huh. Um. So, in your research, uh, you know, and again, I I know that you're just kind of towards, or probably when this comes out, you will have finished. Are you graduating in December? That's the plan. Yes. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> uh. And again, congratulations. Thank so you. when this comes out, you will have already graduated. So that's awesome. Um. And I know it's you're in a weird time with publications and stuff. And I don't want you to go too much into detail, but can you tell us a little bit, uh, maybe generally what you found and and how that research went? Sure. So through our research, we found out uh, there were some researchers in Michigan who identified the pathogen in their orchards. We found it down in central Pennsylvania. So we know it's in two locations in Pennsylvania. And we know it's in Maryland. So it's more widely spread in the U.S. than we previously realized. We don't know at this point whether this is an introduced pathogen. There's a mm-hmm. lot of debate over whether this is an invasive and introduced, whether it's a ubiquitous, meaning it's everywhere. So some people think maybe climate change just caused it to emerge so conditions are favorable. We don't really know. But uh, we so we're seeing it in more locations in the United States, but there really aren't that many people looking at it. So we worked with three of those strains for our study. And the good news is we found that they didn't really differ in terms of the damage that they caused between, at least at this point. We're still doing uh, some further data analysis to compare, but right now it's looking like the three of them don't really, we don't have one that's more damaging than another, which is good. We don't have some crazy hyper <laughs> fungus out there. That That is good news. Yeah. Um, and then, so we, we looked at it for nut rot, because that's what it's primarily known for in Europe. It's been really damaging in Europe and Australia. And then we looked at it in terms of the its ability to cause those damaging cankers like chestnut blight does. And we got some really interesting results. I don't want to go into too much detail right. regarding what we found, but um, it's looking like it's going to affect more than just chestnut species. To what, to what scale and whether this is occurring in, in the natural environment remains to be determined because... We did it in lab conditions. So whether this is occurring in forests is a totally different story. Okay. That's, again, those are, it's, from a scientific standpoint, that's very interesting. That's that's very fascinating. We were surprised by our results, I'll say that. <laughs> and from a practical standpoint, I know that as someone who enjoys walking, well, we don't have forest where I live, 
But sometimes <laughs> I go to places with forests. And as someone who enjoys, you know, looking at trees, uh, hearing those kinds of things is always a little bit like, oh, gosh, you know, there's another thing. Uh, and the fact that climate, there's a, even a possibility that we're driving some of these processes with, like, through climate change mm-hmm. should be really sobering, I think, to a lot of people listening to this. Yes, yeah. So that, I mean, we're still looking into that. I think sequencing the genome might help us unlock potentially the origin of this and help us better determine whether that was something that was always there or if it is related to climate change. But it is certainly something that should raise alarm bells for people that, you know, you could potentially be letting this path. Well, so the fungus is an endophyte and an endophyte in terms of a, a fungus, is it's something that you could find pretty much living anywhere inside of the plant and okay. not causing any damage. But somehow it's becoming pathogenic also. And we don't know why. So that's, hmm. I think, why there's the idea that it was there and now it's just becoming pathogenic because of climate change conditions, could be because of stress conditions to the trees, which again could be related to climate change. <laughs> <laughs> so, Huh. That's okay. Yeah, no, and that and that makes some sense. Just you know, knowing the little bit I do about plant pathology. Yeah, I mean, uh, the the more stressed a plant is, the more susceptible a host it tends to become. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk more about how diseases are spread, what we can do about it, and what life in grad school and what writing a thesis is like. Well, hey, y'all. Welcome to the mid-roll. It's good to see you here. I'm glad you've stuck with me this long. I hope you'll stick with me through the rest of this episode. So uh, just a couple of quick things to get out of the way. I don't have a whole lot to say this time. Um, I say that and then I'll talk for 20 minutes. So, you know, that's how it goes. But um, if you want to support the show, there's a lot of ways you can do it. The first way you can do it is by connecting on social media. So if you want to connect on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, look for Planthropology. It is Anthropology with a PL on the front. Look for the green background with the bristlecone pine, and that'll be me. The uh, uh, usernames change just a little bit between the three because people beat me to them in some of the places and uh, Twitter won't let me use enough characters. So that's frustrating. Also, if you want to see a lot of my shenanigans, go over to TikTok and look me up as at the plant prof for better or worse. Uh, myself and whatever was left of my dignity are hanging out there these days. Um, also, another way you can support the show is to tell your friends about it. Tell your friends about Planthropology. They want to know, and I want them to know too. So if you have people you like in your life that enjoy joy and happiness and plants and uh, all the things that are good, be a good friend and tell them about Planthropology. You can also leave me a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser um, and anywhere else that you can review the show. It's kind of nice. It makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside. It's social proof that people actually listen to this thing, and it's just a nice thing to do. I wear a size five-star review if you'd like to get me a gift. Um, Also, thoughts, comments, suggestions for the show, guests you'd like to see, topics you'd like me to cover, send me a email at planthropologypod at gmail.com or connect on social media and uh, let me know what you think. I would love to take some of your suggestions into account as I develop the show and as I talk to guests and as I come up with new ideas. My brain only gets us so far, as you've probably figured out. Finally, if you want to support the show 
financially, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash planthropology and literally buy me a coffee. I will use that money to buy coffee, which lets me keep recording this podcast. You can also buy some cool Planthropology merch, whether you like stickers or hats or t-shirts or really anything in between. Um, go to planthropologypod.com, click on merch. It'll take you to the Redbubble store and you can buy some cool designs to your heart's content. I'll be adding a lot more over the next few months and so there'll be a lot more cool Planthropology things you can get. Finally, thanks so much to the Texas Tech Department of Plant and Soil Science for always supporting the show, always being so cool and for really buying into this vision and this project. It means the world to me and I could not do this otherwise. Aside from that, uh, that's all I got. Let's get back into it. Talk more about plant diseases and other cool things. Kind of on that track, um, do do we have any ideas on how it might be spread or how similar pathogens like this are spread? Yeah, so right now, out of there are two theories, and I think they both are, they're both valid. So out of Australia, they think it's primarily through the burrs, which is what holds the nut on the okay. tree, overwintering on the forest floors or the orchard floors. And I think that come spring, the pathogen emerges and it sporulates. So the spores get out and it infects the flowers because they primarily deal with it as a nut rot pathogen in Australia. So for them, that makes the most sense. That's where they're seeing it come from. In Europe, however, they seem to see an association with it being like a wind and temperature dependent. So the warmer it is and the windier it is, the more that we see dispersal. Okay. That's that's really interesting. And the fact that there are multiple possible, like sort of infection disease cycles associated makes it more challenging to probably identify and to control. Yeah, well, it is. Yeah, especially because this is one of those pathogens where it has the two sexual life cycles. So it has a sexual and an asexual, and they look different. They behave differently. So really tracking that down and understanding what you're dealing with can be more challenging. Yeah, for sure. So, and this may be a little bit of outside the scope of, of your work, but I'm, I'm curious, um, from a like management standpoint, um, like I don't, I'm trying to figure out. How, I'll probably cut this part out because I'm trying to figure out <laughs> ask the question right. Um, okay, so with blights and rots and, and similar diseases, right? We can draw some some conclusions as far as management, what we should be doing, and all that. So, what can people that maybe live in affected areas like? Are there things they should be doing or shouldn't be doing, both from like a, a homeowner standpoint or like an orchard owner standpoint? Uh, for these, it's very tough, particularly because you, in a lot of cases, you can't see that the tree is infected. It does exist as an endophyte, hmm. so it could be there causing infection and you would never know it. It makes it very challenging to deal with. Wow. Yeah. Um, if you have chestnuts in your yard, clean up the burrs at the end of the year. Just get rid of them so that they're not sitting out there because come spring, they could be releasing the spores. If you collect the nuts, go ahead and collect them. Do a water test. All you have to do is uh, soak them in some water. And if they float, then they're not good nuts. It could be from other fungi that are present. It could be from insects. But get rid of those things. Don't leave them sitting around so they can infect <laughs> something else. <laughs> is there a specific way? And, and I asked this question, and I'll maybe 
qualify this in a sec, but like, is there a specific way they should be disposed of? Now that I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. Um, I believe the standard process is burning, but I'm not positive that that would be the appropriate method. (laughs) So (laughs) don't quote me on that one. (laughs) Yeah. Emily says to start fires. (laughs) Um, I I ask because we have a, it's not a, the disease is not necessarily similar and maybe in some ways, but we have a disease in Texas called Oak wilt. That Mm -hmm. is uh, a huge problem. Uh, You know, it's, it's not 4 billion trees, but it's in the hundreds of millions of trees that we think that it's killed. And um, we see a lot of spread. I mean, this is this is spread by a beetle. The life cycle is different. <laughs> but we see a lot of spread through infected firewood um, into new parts of the state. I don't know that that would really be too much of a problem, at least not right now. The, the issue with this pathogen is that when you see the damage on the wood, it looks like chestnut blight. So if you're seeing wood that's damaged, you're probably not using that anyway. Right. And not transferring that anywhere because it's pretty gross. It's not going to be good for anything. <laughs> but if you don't see it, then it's probably not. If it's it, then it's existing as an endophyte inside the the bark of the tree. And so I don't think that you're going to have too much of an issue. But nobody's really looked to be okay. sure. It's, I mean, there's still this is a new pathogen. It's been around for less than a decade, or at least it's been described for less than a decade. That's kind of wild to think about too. That. Like this is sort of for for something that could be a major issue, you're kind of like at the cutting edge of it. I think that's really cool. Yeah, it's kind of fun <laughs> and a little weird. <laughs> I bet it is. You know, I, I think that when we talk about science, especially in graduate school, it feels a lot of times like this is, and I guess I can only speak from my experience, but it feels sometimes like, especially for me as a master's student that I was like, to a certain extent, reinventing the wheel or, or no, uh, not reinventing the wheel, but like doing stuff that maybe was not super novel. Uh, but you get to kind of work on something that's brand new. And I think that's really uh, the, the scientist to me gets really excited about like, ooh, new discovery, like novel science. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And I, I was pretty lucky. It was just because I had a really good advisor <laughs> who was like, go get it. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> that's awesome. So. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you are um, kind of heading forwards towards a PhD. Do you have any idea on what you're thinking about working on? Yeah, so we're going to be looking to we're going to be looking at dormancy in some uh, tubers, so uh, root vegetables. I don't want to get too specific and give sure. things away. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand <laughs> but, that for sure. Yeah, we'll be looking at describing dormancy and dormancy changes. So hopefully, we can better understand what's occurring in those the root vegetables that we store over winter and kind of maybe how can we prevent them from coming out of dormancy? That's very cool. And very, I I would think be, would be very useful research to, you know, make food, food crops last longer. Yeah, exactly. How can we uh, prevent it from exiting dormancy and spoiling essentially? So, yeah, huh, very cool. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit, um, and this is not necessarily directly plant related, but can you tell us a little bit about your experience in, in uh, grad school as a master's student? I just, I always like to, I like to ask this sometimes, especially to uh, people that are still sort of in it or at the end of it, because I think there's so much that we can take away from like different experiences and different um 
uh, sort of paths through graduate school and through school in general. Like, I, I don't want you to be like, oh, it was awful. You know, I hate my advisor. <laughs> I don't think that's true. But like, how was your experience? Is, is it something that you really enjoyed? Uh, yeah, I I really enjoyed my experience as a master's student. But to my experience was different than what most other people are going to experience because the local branch of the university that I attended was looking, they're hoping to someday start a graduate program in bio in, in sciences in general. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of using me as a Guinea pig. Oh, I should, I suppose I should say I get to be the Guinea pig. <laughs> so I, I traveled to our main campus for courses, but I did my research at the local branch campus. So I didn't get to partake in a lot of the normal grad school stuff that other students might get to. And I didn't really get to be a part of that environment for the most part, Mm -hmm. but I loved the opportunities that this afforded me. Personally, I think that graduate courses are compared to undergraduate courses. I feel almost like they're less demanding. They're easier because they're what you're focused on and there aren't as many of them and, and you can dedicate more time to it and you're more passionate about what you're learning. So I think that made graduate school way more enjoyable than undergrad for sure. <laughs> that's that's an interesting take. And I, I think you're absolutely right. That was very similar to my experience too. Uh, and I think sometimes like we try to scare for some reason. And I have this sense that as I was getting into graduate school, a lot of people told me like, oh, it's going to be super hard and all of this stuff. And I really enjoyed graduate school. <laughs> like it has its ups and downs for sure. Right. right. But but yeah, I think that I think that being able to really dial in your education to something you really care about mm-hmm. is is very cool. Yeah. Finding the balance can be a challenge sometimes when you're trying to do research and courses and then you find out that you slack too long on writing your thesis. <laughs> Side eyes. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I get that too. <laughs> and you get into it and you go, oh, shoot, I probably should have started this sooner. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. So I want to ask you about that since you brought it up. Um, how, okay, I ask this, this as someone who is probably the least productive writer in academia. I'm real bad uh, <laughs> at like, I started a podcast in the middle of it. That was good for me. Um, how was the writing experience for you? Because you you did it pretty quick, right? Well, I mean, I I think I wrote my intros and my methods as I went. Sure. But being a dummy, I was like... <laughs> I'll include this citation later. So then <laughs> I had to go back and try to find my citations. <laughs> so that probably wasted way too much of my own time. I should have just done it way up front. But uh, no, I mean, I think overall, it took me a couple months to write, but a lot of that had to do with just reprocessing data. Data sure. was the biggest. Data analysis was the biggest time suck of my, <laughs> of my thesis. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm having like flashbacks. I, yeah, <laughs> no, the, that's really funny that you say that. So if I was going to throw some advice at people listening, if you're doing grad school, you, you, you put your citations in. I did the same thing. Did you? Okay. I did the exact, I would put like parentheses in like, I know I need a citation here and I'll remember see, that's what exactly I, exactly what I did. <laughs> and then months later, I'm like, oh, oh my God, I have no idea what this was supposed to be. Where did I get this from? Yeah. 
Yeah, put your citations in as you go. That is good writing advice. Yep. <laughs> and use the citation manager. I'll throw that out there too. Right. I definitely found that I switched my uh, the way that I cited about halfway through. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. I, I laugh because this is this is so similar to how I wrote my dissertation for my PhD. Like I just it was so chaotic. And at the end, I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing. I just have to slap something together. Yep. Yep. And ultimately, I'm really proud of what I put together. I know that there are some things that I probably overlooked because you can only review your own words so many uh -huh. times. <laughs> uh -huh. Or there are things that you just forget that you need to check. But I'm really proud of what I put together. And I think it turned out to be decent. It got me a graduate degree. So. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? It, it's that's actually, and I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this out there. That is very important. That point you just made is very important. Um, one of my committee members told me through the process, and I did this thing where I was like, I'm kind of in a, a weird sort of perfectionist that if I if if I don't feel like I'm doing it right, I'll keep redoing it over and over and just waste time on that. You're like cheaty from the good place. Just yes. Kept rewriting his dissertation over that, and over. Yes. I struggled so much with that. And one of my uh, well, my advisor and then one of my, um, uh, my co-chair actually on my committee was like, this is not supposed to be the best thing you ever write. I was like, oh. He was like, this is just to show that you're capable and then you should write far better things than this in the future. So stop stressing out. I was like, Oh, I totally agree. Cause you go into it going from undergrad to graduate. You think, Oh my gosh, this is the real world. And I have to be completely professional all the time. And absolutely you should be professional and you should strive to do your best, but you are still learning. And that's kind of the idea of going into a master's and not going straight to a PhD is you're still learning. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're you're very much you're learning the process of academia, of research, of all of that. And that's important, like formative time um, in like your career, in your life. And, and I, I wish I had internalized that sooner in the process. And so I think that you going into your PhD kind of knowing that I think that'll help you a lot. <laughs> I'm hoping I say fewer dumb things into a microphone next time around, but we'll see. <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, I I identify strongly with that, too. Um, so uh, this may not be something you really know yet, but uh, long term, what are your goals with your PhD? Do you want to do research? Do you want to teach some of both? Um, you know, I'm not really sure. I had originally gone into it thinking I wanted to teach. But after seeing what other professors go through, I'm not sure that that's ultimately really what I want to do. I, you know, I have two small kids at this point and I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> I have three more years ahead of me. I think I might want to go into industry okay. and do research there and really kind of get to explore things that maybe I wouldn't otherwise get to explore because, you know, when you're in academia, you're tied to where the grants are sending you. Mm -hmm. And so I think that'll afford me a little more opportunity to maybe play around with some of the things I'm more interested in. That's cool. Uh, it, and I've just got to say, you going through this process with two young kids, you're kind of a superhero. Like, that's amazing. <laughs> no, I mean, and I mean that honestly. Like, uh, knowing the amount of time and effort that goes into school, but also being a parent, like, that's that's very impressive. You should be really proud of that. 
Basically, they go to bed at 8 o'clock, and then I write from 8 until 1 o'clock in the morning and get up and do it the next day. It's it's tough, but that's that's amazing. So uh, Who congratulations. Needs sleep, right? <laughs> so overrated. That's why they made coffee. Exactly. Uh, I, I have I blame graduate school for my coffee addiction. Yes, for sure. One hundred percent. Um that, no, that's that's really good. I mean, I think and I think all of that's good information. And I, I like the way that you approach it, that uh, you know, it's I, I like your enthusiasm for it because I feel like I talk to so many people in the process and like d- when they're done, when they're still going through it, that are just like, they then end up super cynical and burned out on it. And I think we, that's an easy trap to fall into, but it, it makes me happy to, I guess, hear your excitement for what you're doing. I think that's really cool. Thank you. I I think for some people it can be hard because it depends on the program that you get into. It depends sure. on your advisor and the peers that you work with because it's a workplace just like any other. And sometimes your job isn't what you thought it would be. I just happened to luck out, got to do what I really loved with people I enjoy. Yeah, that's really great, and that and you that is a fortunate thing. I feel similarly, and and I yeah no, and I don't want to uh, make it sound like, you know, I, I know that people do have tough experiences. And, yeah, absolutely, and that's super uh, valid too. And I know that that's that's tough to deal with, but it is it is exciting just as someone who's you know getting into. Uh, being faculty and doing research and seeing the struggles that you know students I work with go through it's it, just the excitement I think is is contagious and really exciting I like that hopefully your students catch it from you uh, I I hope so I I try to be nice to them at least <laughs> based on your Instagram posts I think they do oh well well thanks I I, I appreciate that um so as we kind of wrap up uh, a question I always ask my guests um is if you had one thing to send our listeners, the audience home with uh, a piece of advice or something you've learned, and it can be about plants or fungus or life or whatever, what, what do you think that would be? Find something that you're passionate about and fight for it. whatever it is, go for it. I think yes. passion is a, a hugely important driving factor in how we move this world forward people who are passionate take us leaps and bounds yeah that i love that that's great um i I like how you say that too that that the the passion for science and just making things better is how we'll get out of a lot of the messes that we're in um well that 40 minutes goes quick I, (laughs) i always look at this and then i'm like i have more to ask and and I would like to if you're willing after you get you know some stuff published and you get into your you know later in your PhD when you're comfortable talking about some of the stuff that you're doing I'd love to have you back to uh, talk about some of the future work you do oh sure I'd be happy to awesome um where can people find you do you want to be found I I feel like I ask that question sometimes and people are like no just leave me alone I don't want to be found <laughs> um I really don't have much of a social media presence it's um <laughs> I'm too busy with other things to be honest. I, I think that makes you the smarter of the two of us because I <laughs> spend more time on social media than is healthy for any one human. Um but uh that's that's actually absolutely fine. Um but uh we'll I, I would like to again keep up with your your research as you go. I think it's really fascinating. Thank you very much. 
Um, well, did we, did we, did I leave anything out? Is there anything we needed to, that you wanted to cover that we haven't? I don't think so. Okay. Just happy to, I will talk your ear off all day. So (laughs) it's better for you to cut it short when you're ready. (laughs) Well, Emily, I really enjoyed that. I learned a lot for sure. And, uh, I think that our listeners will enjoy that a lot too. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Y'all find something you love, find something you really enjoy doing that you're passionate about and then do it. Uh, There's always another way to get into a career, into a path that you like, Uh, whether it's later in life, whether it fit the quote unquote plan or not. You can always find a way to do something you love and something you care about. And that's interesting and that you're passionate about. So thanks so much to Emily for sharing some of her wisdom and advice and some great information about plants and diseases and all kinds of other interesting things. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I know that I, anytime I get a chance to talk to some cool plant people and talk to friends, it's a good thing. Y'all, thanks so much for listening. You know I do this for you, and I know that um, your support, the fact that you listen and take part of this, means the world to me. Thanks one final time to the Texas Tech Department of Plant and Soil Science for letting me host, edit, produce, find guests, do all the other fun things that I get to do for this podcast and for making it part of my life here at Texas Tech. Um, It's really been one of the most fulfilling experiences ever. Y'all, if you're listening to this, um, be nice to each other. Keep being kind. If you haven't been kind to this point, probably start doing the thing. Uh, I'll be back next week talking about trees with the third installment of Tree Talk. We'll be talking about climate change. So this is a pretty serious one that I hope that you will be a part of and that you'll listen into. But until then, you know how much I love you. Uh, Take care of yourselves. Be safe. Be kind. Be smart. And we will talk again soon. You've been listening to a podcast of the Podfix Network. Discover more audible gems like this at podfixnetwork.com. Make sure to catch up-to-the-minute network shenanigans by following at Podfix on Twitter, official underscore Podfix on Instagram, at Podfix Network on Facebook. And make sure to subscribe to Podfix Presents wherever you choose to find podcasts. The Podfix Network, artist owned and loved.